Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, we talk about ulterior meanings, inventions that took on a life of their own because of the public. Jill talks about an ancient drinking vessel that's enjoyed a resurgence of popularity in the modern era. Emily talks about a piece of music that started one way and became quite another thanks to a radio announcement in the 1940s. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. This could be one of the top five wines we've tasted at Scores and Pours. It's so delicious. Wow. Okay, so today we're going to talk about, um, we're sharing a glass. The reason why we didn't, you know, we usually cheers to Scores and Pours, and we can't Mm -hmm. do that today. Why? Kind of can. Well, we will. Yeah. But the reason we aren't doing it with two glasses is because we are going to focus on uh, inventions, whether they be symphonic or Mm -hmm. whether they be... uh, something surrounding wine that has ulterior meanings uh, that the public has placed on them that the inventor or the writer mm-hmm. um, didn't didn't really intend for that to happen. Yeah, it's funny how the public, or in, in the case of my story that we'll tell, it's really the media kind of uh, gave this piece meaning and therefore the public adopted that meaning uh, through media. And mine, uh, my ulterior meaning doesn't really stem from, it does stem from a type of media. And I'll just say social media has probably made this into Mm -hmm. what it is. Um, So can you divulge what you... I can, but before I do, I would love to just say thank you to my friend Andrew Gattis who gave us this idea. And if, you know, you're listening and you have an idea, you can always reach out to us uh, in various ways either on our Podbean page or our p- Patreon, and so we can include links and stuff for you. You can also direct message us on our Instagram page. True that. At Scores and Pours. At Scores and Pours, yeah. All one word. Um, so Andrew uh, sent me an article about uh, a piece by American composer Samuel Barber, and it's called The Popular Reception of Samuel Barber's Adagio, and String, uh, Adagio for Strings. And Samuel Barber wrote uh, this Adagio for Strings actually as part of a string quartet when he was pretty young. He was in his mid-20s, and uh, it's the middle movement of his string quartet in B minor. And uh, it kind of spun off on a life of its own and has ended up in dozens and dozens of movies and television shows uh, uh, emergency broadcasts, uh, announcements of presidential deaths. It's been used in, in a lot of ways that, uh, Barber surely never meant it to be. So, uh, that's what I'm going to be talking about a little bit. And I'm going to be talking about, uh, not a wine itself, although the wine is delicious. We'll <sighs> definitely get to that, but, uh, we're going to be talking about the Porron 
a vessel that was conceived in, they think, Catalonia, but it has a very interesting history, not only how it came to be, but its function. Um, and then now that it has 24,000 posts a day that is hashtagged, wow. um, it's become something... Definitely something else, and we'll we'll talk about that. We may get into natural wine, too, because that's something that has also mm. always existed, sort of, sort of not, and then now it's like the kitschy, cool thing, which yeah. I'm a great proponent of, but still. Sure, sure, sure. Um, so yeah. what do you want to start with, Emily? Uh, well, let's start with the Perón, if we could. <laughs> Definitely can. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, have, I have just like every human being, well, most human beings, I have four appendages, if I were to have a fifth, mm-hmm. it would be a porron, perhaps. Um, okay. So the porron uh, was, they th- they think that the first um, like vessel slash kind of apparatus to drink wine out of that was, that closely resembled a, a porron, P-O-R-R-O with an accent, and for those of you that are wondering how it's spelt, um, was conceived in, they think, the Roman Empire, and it was called a, a riton. Uh, I think I'm pronouncing that okay. Riton or riton, R-H-Y-T-O-N. And it was kind of like a cow horn that you could drink out of, some sort, some sort of horn element okay. that you could drink out of. And it was, sometimes it had a hole at the bottom of it, that so you'd pour in the wider end. Yeah, and then if it had a hole in the bottom end, oh. you you just when it was poured, you drink you'd out of drink, it right you'd then. You drink out of it right then, I okay. guess. Yeah, or sure. maybe you'd plug it up with your finger, maybe, and then yeah. let it go. Yeah. Um, or it was just a, a horn of sorts. The issue with that was was you couldn't set it set it down, um, and we see this sort of historical vessel all over the world. Uh, you know, obviously Scandinavia had something similar um, w- with or without a hole, that I'm not certain, but they know that Egyptians had something similar. Um, fast forward to the 14th and the 15th century in Catalonia, and we have something that is resembling, more resembling a porron that we know today. Definitely not glass. They think it was probably clay. Um, but then there are mixed... There's sort of a mi- mixed in historical references of whether it was actually called like a, I think it's called a botija, like a clay vessel that was used for, that had a spout on it. Mm-hmm. Look up porron while we're while we're talking about this because it'll give you an idea. The clay vessel that for water, botija was also carried around and it would keep your water cold. Um, and we'll, we'll get past the 14th and 15th century in a moment. Really? You're shutting it down? Yeah, I think we should take a rest in the middle of, you know, an era where witches were getting burned and things like that, and let's... uh, So that we can listen to the saddest piece of music ever written? Yeah, and then we can become (laughs) happy by drinking out of a porron. That sounds like a great idea, doesn't it? Yeah. I call it that because it was voted that, the adagio for strings. Um, Again, I'll just reiterate, Samuel Barber, American composer in the 20th century. He was born in 1910. He died in 1981, so pretty much the entirety of the 20th century. And uh, he's one of the most important American composers, right up there with Aaron Copland, Leonard Bernstein. Uh, Those two names are more popularly known, but Samuel Barber's music is as ubiquitous throughout all of media and pop culture 
and it's really just one piece of his that is, which is... Oh, really? Yeah, it's really just the adagio for strings. I mean, he's got lots of great pieces we've talked about. He, his, won, a, he won a Pulitzer Prize, did, a couple of them, didn't he? Yeah, I think he did for... for music? Um, Something when he was still super young, or maybe that's when he won the Prix de Rome. I can't. I can't remember. I, I'm not up on all his awards, but I know that he uh, is one of the most recorded uh, in terms of like his compositional output. Almost all of that's been recorded and was performed in his lifetime. I mean, that's just not normal. Yeah, you know, he was a popular guy, um, and so he writes this string quartet in 1936. Yeah, 35, 36, 35, 36. He started it in 35, 36. And pretty much at the same time, he knew when he wrote that string quartet, that string quartet has three movements, a fast opener, the slow adagio, which is the middle piece, and then a fast close, uh, closing movement. So three movements, the middle movement being the adagio. Um, he knew when he wrote that second movement that it was dynamite. You know, He was really proud of it. And so he pretty much made a version for orchestra right away, and that got premiered fairly early in the whole thing, too. But even then, it just it was, like, sort of critically acclaimed and sort of not. Like, some, some critics just thought it was a long plod. You know, some critics bashed the whole quartet before talking about just the quartet version. Um, so... To me, the fact that it eventually became such a commercial success is just the tiniest bit surprising, except I think really what happened was someone who knew what the hell they were doing, who knew about music and who knew about American music and American composers, when FDR died in 1945, they played that on the radio. And on the radio, that's how people got all their information then. Mm -hmm. And I think that's... You know, that person then set off this whole ridiculous chain that has continued. I mean, September 11th, it's all you heard was Adagio for can, Strings. Can I can I read a few that I jotted down? Yeah. Because I thought it was crazy. The, like, where you've heard this piece, yeah. Where, yeah, so uh, JFK's death announcement that was on TV. Um, yeah, that, that's actually a funny story, but yeah. So, and I know that it, I think it was JFK's favorite piece or something like that too, but so um, that, it was played at Einstein's funeral. Einstein mm. requested that it was played at his funeral. Mm -hmm. It was one of the only American pieces to ever be played in the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which mm -hmm. I thought was um, pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, it was played after uh, Princess Di's funeral on the yeah. BBC, and then the Brussels Philharmonic, they played it uh, in front of the Stock Exchange after the whole um, the whole Brussels bombings. So they played this big free concert in um, Central Park after the Orlando nightclub shooting. Like it's fan it's just it's been everywhere. It's it's yeah. fantastic how the plethora of different like just areas and walks of life it's touched, mm -hmm. but all around somber occasion yeah know? yeah and it um, is really sad and slow moving uh there are other people have described it more on the terms of bolero like one big musical orgasm and so when you think of it that way it's a little weird <laughs> well what about what about too like i i guess when i was um and i i actually if anybody i'm sure a lot of you out there have seen platoon um where the death of sergeant Elias, it's like one of the most memorable parts of that film. Oh, um, 1986, I think, or something like that. Platoon. Like what, 
what about it? And I guess we'll maybe I'll, I'll ask you this question after we listen to it. Remind me to ask you this question about okay. the key signature. Let's let's. I already know what's coming. I tried to get through this piece this morning. I listened to it a few times over the weekend, of course, and I like couldn't. I couldn't hack it. I like, couldn't get through it. So it's I think too, we should yeah. drink some wine right now, <laughs> knowing <laughs> what's coming. It. Let's uh, do it. So um, we'll go back to. Uh, We'll go back to about the 1700s. So we're talking about the porron again, which um, just for those of you that are driving and can't look it up right now, um, a porron, it looks kind of like, uh, think of a maybe two or three times the size of a softball. Okay, that's it's squat on the bottom so you can set it down and it kind of gets a little bit more conical as it goes up. And then you get about two-thirds of the way up the side and there's this kind of phallic tube that gets, it starts um, wider and as you go, as you go kind of angular up, it gets like a lot thinner and you're at like maybe three millimeters of an opening. And then uh, to counteract that, on the top of it, so maybe at about a 45 degree angle from the spigot, you've got a kind of a wide, almost even tube to put whatever you're going to put in here. It's usually wine, but it can be beer, it can be cider, it can be water, of course. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we know that something very similar to this was around in the 1700s. Like they don't know if it was glass or not at that time, but it was in um, the Spanish dictionary at that (laughs) time. And then in around 1817, we know that it says it specifies that this is to like to drink out of. So now we know it's a specifically a drinking vessel. Um, and then you fast forward less than 50 years. It's like in the 1850s where it says this is a vessel to drink wine out of. So we know that this glass usually it's got a little bit of an aqua kind of greenish tinge to classic porrones. Hails from Catalonia, so northeastern Spain, the region right around Barcelona. Um, and it has a spigot with which to drink out of and specifically wine. Now, what's funny is nowadays, porrones are all the rage. Yeah. Let me, I'm going to pass this to Emily so she can see all the people that have tagged porron today. You've got um, people that are, you know, promoting their beers and bu- saying buy this on Etsy because it's so fun. Wow. Um, you've got this woman who won something on Wine Enthusiast 40 Under 40, and she's like boomeranging herself in her little plaid outfit. You know, she's pouring the porron. Then you've got, you know, some sort of y- yuppie situation, and you got some guy who looks like he's trying to get a date, but he also looks like a little bird. He's just like, yeah. pour that into my mouth, yeah, yeah. Uh, chick. <laughs> and so you've just got like, here's a woman that looks like she's in a bathroom. She looks maybe like a model, maybe not, but she's sort of like just by herself in the uh, bathroom drinking out of a porron, which is weird. Someone took that picture. She ain't by herself. Yeah, she's not. Someone here is on a trip and they've said they've mastered the porron. It's like, have they? Have you? Is it really that hard to master a porron? Anyway, um, there's just all kinds of like interesting, um, yeah, interesting things to say about what's happened to the porron. Yeah. Now it's like the kitschy, cool thing to do. Right. Um, but in reality, why does the porron exist? To pour it into my mouth. It does. Yep. Why? Because when we think of everything that was happening when the dictionary says that this is for wine, mm-hmm. what was happening in the 1840s in Spain? They were going through Carlist Wars. They had just lost the Spanish-American independence, or the Spanish-American independence wars were going on. There was a, a lot of poverty in Spain, and there was a lot of sickness. And so 
I can drink out of this, water or wine, preferably wine, and you can drink out of it and I don't. I can share it with you and I'm mm-hmm. not putting my mouth on it. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do it right now and try not to wet the mic. Passing just, it to Emily? No, I'm just putting my mouth right on it. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. You can't cheat. So as she's pouring... And Am I supposed to go, just go for it? Yeah, just go for it. You don't have to. Don't you can't stick it in your mouth, Emily. I'm not. Yeah, you are. You're Am sticking, I? Yes. I'm not touching it. There you go. And you don't have to like hold it far. There you go. Because some people don't want to sit and drink like a ton. They just have a little sip. So, the mm. idea is that you. So good. I know, right? Mm. So the idea is that you. Um, are obviously not not spreading the wealth in terms of sickness and disease, but yeah. it's also if I'm having a gathering of 15 people or I have a family of 10 people. You have Catholic, one glass to wash instead of 15. Exactly. You know, well, that not only that, but it's just people, a lot of people couldn't afford glasses for everybody that's coming right. to their house or yeah. for their whole family. So this was an easy way to everybody drink wine, everybody drink beer, whatever, and you're passing it around. Maybe a family had two porrones. Um, so... It's just something that out of function, of course, like really a lot of cool things nowadays, out of function came design and fanfare, which is like, and I I personally, yes, as much as I love to like say the cool kids and the blah, 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 I love to sit on a, you know, fourth story patio and plow this into my friend's mouth four stories below. It's fun. <laughs> it's ridiculous. You know, I the weirdest thing I think it was like, uh, having someone on a boat pour this into my mouth while I was skiing, that that ha- that's happened. That's fun. Um, so, yeah. Love it. Now do we listen to something really depressing, but I'm going to put more wine in my mouth in the meantime? Yep. There you go. Passing that. Yes. She's got about like a good two inches. That's that's good. I'll tell you what we're tasting uh, after we get to some barber because okay. it's beautiful. Well, let's... Let's wait on the adagio for just a half a second. Okay. And let's talk about what it came housed in in the first place. Please. The string quartet. Because knowing... <laughs> what it came housed in. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Please. Um, because it's it's a fantastic string quartet. And uh, you just don't... If you know the adagio and you aren't familiar with the string quartet, it's strange to hear it in its original setting, you know? Uh, but anyway, so let's just listen to, you know, just a minute or two of the opening movement of, of his string quartet in B minor. And so be prepared for some angst. <laughs> and the first movement has, um, it's in sonata form, right? Mm-hmm. Am I right about that? Yes, but do you know what sonata form is? Well, doesn't it have an exposition first? Yes, go on. And then we... We recapitulate. The th- we have some themes that happen. Don't say that R word quite yet. Okay. Well, we develop. Yes. And then we recapitulate. Yes. And then there might be a coda. I pay attention in class, people. So you were going to ask me about the key. During the second movement. Oh, okay. 
because it's not in a traditional key compared, because this is in B minor. And so traditionally the, you know, second movement would be related to that somehow. And it's not <laughs> at all. What's the second movement in? B flat minor. So isn't that obviously a really... It's a very distant... Sad, dissonant key? Yeah. So that's some of the opening. You know, I was writing down um, also about here, I'll pass, I'll pass the porron. Yes. Because that's what, that's what friends do. So the molto adagio, or what we're, we're talking about, the second movement, um, isn't that also with some time changes? And I ask yeah. that because I think that's really fun in music, and it makes it, um, for me, it's like having seasonings and different spices and different balance tones in a dish when there are you know, changes in, in time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, time changes, meter changes, both those terms are interchangeable. Um, and there are a lot of changes in the time signature in this piece. And it, um, you know, it, to me, it just really serves the phrasing of, of the melody. I mean, it's a very stepwise, there's a lot of stepwise motion with uh, the voicings in... The quartet and, uh, you know, the meter kind of just kind of goes a little bit all over the place and, yeah. Oh, let's just let's just get over it already. Let's just, just listen, listen to, to it. Some okay. It's just so great. We'll listen and so, to the string quartet version for sure. Yeah, that's what I listen to. Yeah. so we don't go into a sad place. I'll just keep talking. Well, I was going to say, anybody after this, you know, play a little Beyonce or just whatever you, <laughs> whatever you need to do, you know. <laughs> play something a little ridiculous and higher pitched yes. and higher, higher, <laughs> uh, with higher energy after this. Yeah. shouldn't say higher energy. Major chords. So the first film this appeared in, uh, I can't even remember the name of it, uh, but the first huge hit film it, it took place in was David Lynch's Elephant Man. And when Oliver Stone used it in Platoon, I think David Lynch was a little miffed. You know, he's like, dude, I used that for my shit. Now you're using it for yours. Mm-hmm. But then everybody just started, you know, and then everybody, and then David Lynch is like, well, it's a great piece of music. Everybody should use it. It's just so deep. It makes me actually just want to forego the porron and just drink out of the bottle. <laughs> it's just like, good God. Oh, and especially it's when a it sad gets. One. Can we can we fast forward to when it it well, yeah. reaches up to the two thirds of the way through?
Horsehair and metal. Just keep that in mind. That right there is so hopeful. It's like, you know, it's just like that little vitamin of, of life and hope. Yeah. That I think if it didn't have that, it would just be... Yeah. People would just end it. <laughs> like, they'd just, they'd just stop. <laughs> you know? Have you heard the vocal version? No. Huh. The vocal version? Yeah, we'll listen to that in a minute. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, do you have any thoughts or questions on the porron on a little bit of a happier note as as we well when how recently has this uh explosion of peron been porroning we, we, we could combine yeah. the English I'm, and I don't the, mind if I do really please go ahead uh so I would say I became very familiar with the porron in about 2000 2001 2002 and in Spain, and when I moved back, I was working at a wine bar that we focused on a lot of biodynamic and some natural producers and some really cool Spanish producers back in like 2005-ish. And we were porroning very often at this wine bar, but we also were like the only ones in town doing it, and that was in 2005. So I don't know, fast forward, maybe 2000. I don't know, New York is usually ahead of the curve. So 2010, maybe, uh, people started in New York and Brooklyn to like have porron festivals and chacoli festivals so that they could just drink copious amounts of chacoli, this white wine uh, from the northern part of the Basque country in Spain. Um, drink them out of porrones. That was like a thing. Yeah. Um, so maybe the early part of this decade. What are we drinking, by the way? Good call. Because... Damn, is it good? It's so delicious. <laughs> it's, and it's so good. It's like a really fair price, too. Um, so this is a wine that is, um, it's a wine uh, from a producer called uh, Francesco Mariani Viticultore. And the, the name of the wine is called Raina. Um, it's from Umbria, which is literally center of Italy. We're like straight up from Rome, like smack dab in the middle of both seas okay. on the Tyranian Adriatic Sea. And the grape is called Grechetto, which is very well known in Umbria. And these guys, um, they're farming everything biodynamically. Uh, they're adding a smidge of sulfur towards the end uh, of, towards bottling. And then they don't add anything or take anything away from their wine. This is spent two days on the skins and you can see how much color it has. It's golden. A lot of times people think, Oh yeah, three months on the skin, so much color. Sometimes, well, Emily asked me the other day, and I was telling her about how color will come and go in a wine. The longer it sits on its skins, it doesn't just. The more time, the more color it has. So this is a quite deep golden color, um, even though it's only spent two days on its beautifully skins. Beautifully golden, like seriously, it's like beautifully golden. Yeah, it's it's like gold. a golden, almost virgin. It's, it's like liquid flirting with, gold. Flirting with a copper color almost, um, and it's from 2017, so it doesn't, it's not like it's old, and that's why it has that color either, okay. which is cool. Um, what's really fun Because too is, just to re recap, uh, white wine gains color with age. 
you can teach my next class, Emily. Sounds perfect. <laughs> That's fun, dude. Just like, you know, pouring out a porron into a wine glass, you know, Mm. just because now we could just to scores and pours. We don't need to quit talking, but to scores and pours. Yeah, Yeah. she's drinking out the porron. I got a glass now, but she's the professional. Oh, that wine is delish. Love it. Delish. So when you hear the Samuel Barber second movement, what parts of the second movement inspire you? First of all, I um, I think writing a string quartet must be one of the most difficult things to do as a composer because there's four players and they're each supposed to mostly have their own part. They're supposed to interact. They're supposed to be consonant at the right times and dissonant at the right times. And there's just literally just four people trying to tell this story. And it, I love that when composers do it well. And I think that Samuel Barber's string quartet in its entirety is amazing. And the second movement, Adagio, uh, one of the other things that just the simplicity of that alone, that it's four voices making this beautiful music that pulls our hearts so powerfully. But also I mentioned earlier how the melody is so stepwise and there's so much stepwise motion. But And by that I just mean... Um, like if you look at a piano, all the notes touch each other basically. You know, whether it's moving up or moving down, they're they're not skipping notes around. Uh, it's stepwise. And so simple again, but so beautiful. And the harmonies are progressive, but not I mean, man, nineteen thirty-five, thirty-six was an incredibly turbulent time in music. I mean, and in the world too. I mean, we're between world wars at this point. There's just chaos. I mean, to a certain extent. And musically speaking, there's composers just writing in straight up dissonance all the time, trying to deconstruct the importance of one note over another note by trying to make all the notes equal, which removes consonants and dissonance from the equation. I mean, just all mm. this like super like esoteric, heady, heady academic music making happening that would continue. And here Barbara is kind of nestled in this weird time in the world and he's young, he's in his mid-20s and he just can write this beautiful music and knows he nailed it. He knows he nailed it and no one else knew that. And nobody else would have known that if that piece of music hadn't been played at FDR's funeral. I swear to God, we wouldn't be hearing that in Platoon if that hadn't been played at FDR's funeral. Well, it wasn't at his funeral. Pardon me. It was played uh, during an announcement or a memorial, some kind of radio broadcast about FDR. That's when it was played. It was not played at his funeral. Uh, With JFK, what happened is they wanted to play that, and they started to play it, and they started to play it at uh, the wrong speed, and it was playing too fast. And so then they put on Beethoven, but they put on <laughs> they put on Beethoven's Pastoral Symphony, which the movements all have like really flowery titles, like "Upon realizing I was having the best day of my life in the pasture," <laughs> and they're like, "Well, maybe that's not the piece we should play right now because JFK just died." Uh, so then they just ended up, I think, playing the Star Spangled Banner. So they played the Adagio for just a very brief amount of time, hmm. but it was intended to be played, you know. 
Um, but I, I, I am therefore just to backtrack, convinced that you know if it hadn't happened uh, during the FDR announcement or or however that went down on the broadcast, I'd. So it was at an ideal. Yeah. Time for that. Yeah, 1945. So it's already nine years have gone by since the piece well, premiered. We're, yeah, we're, and we're also right in the end. midst of sort of the end of the it, end. Yeah, the World War II yeah. and all that. Yeah. 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 So it was just, um, it just kind of hit this time at, in the right place. And I just, you know, you asked me what's inspirational about it. And I went off on a tangent as I am wont to do. But I will say that uh, the two things that I admire the most about it is uh, simplicity in two different ways. The simplicity of the fact that it's four voices creating this beautiful music that uh, wrecks us when we hear it. And uh, the fact that it's just this stepwise, simple motion. I mean, it's mm. so, it's, there's so little complexity to it, yet it is complex. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's like a square. It's perfection in simplicity. This is a wine that I think is a really great introductory to safe orange wine. What does that mean? Because sometimes natural wine can be volatile, mousy, chunks in it, all kinds of things that are unfamiliar. Yeah. And really the only unfamiliar thing about this wine is the color. People might look at it and say, why is it this like gold. burnished gold color? Yeah. And also, like, why does it have all this... These, this tannin and it's got these like it's reminiscent of like bruised fruits and like pear skin the way pear skin is kind of thick you know mm, if you it's don't very ripe you, yep um, so this is a great entry level not only price point wise but more so palate wise because it just there's nothing offensive about it if you like kombucha if you like kimchi you'll love it um, but it's not uh, faulty really in any way. Um, it's just very straightforward orange wine. Two days in the skins. Thank you, Shauna from Amphora Imports, because we were having a great conversation about her portfolio. She's here in Minneapolis, and oh, nice. she represents this wine. She's like, oh, you should good. taste this. And I was like, I know exactly what I'm going to use this for, actually. <laughs> ah, it's going it. in the porron. So. Yes. <laughs> Which is not uh, not common. Orange wine in porrones. It's yeah. usually like guzzlers. Okay. Like glue-glue wines. Yes. Like wines that are meant to just be chugged and not thought about go into the porron. And this is, yes, it's chuggable, but it's also like could humanity? be. <laughs> after the adagio. Uh, yes. Yes, it is good for humanity. So. Have you heard, you've never heard the vocal version? No. I don't know if I want to, but I do want to. So let's do that. It's beautiful, obviously. Uh, Barber, who for much of his life was like, I mean, he never had any kind of religious aspirations about the piece, but he did end up setting it to the Agnus Day text from uh, the Catholic Mass. So that's how you look that up if you want to hear Barber's vocal version 
of the adagio for strings, uh, you would look up Barber Agnus Day, Agnus being A-G-N-U-S, Day being D-E-I, and it'll crush you <laughs> into a million sad pieces. <laughs> This is an English choir, and they're singing in the English choral tradition, no, almost no vibrato. Scores and pours. Scores and pours. Thank you for listening to episode 14 of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours and Instagram at scoresandpours. If you like the show, consider making a financial contribution to patreon.com slash scoresandpours. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan, and I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. Yes. <laughs> I, <get> I love it. <laughs> I never get it. Poron, poron, poron.